This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. I, uh, I'm feeling, as I was sitting down arranging my robes just now, I was hearing the bird song outside and it just smells good and fresh after the rain we've had and it's blue sky today, very green, green trees, summer, we're right on the cusp of summer and I'm feeling the beauty of the morning and I just want you to know that part of that beauty is you being with you is is just wonderful. Thank you so much for your practice. Very happy to see all of you, or at least your names. Um, And in fact, one of the things I wanted to talk about this morning was joy. And of course, I will also be talking about suffering. (laughs) It's what we do. (laughs) And the connection between suffering and joy. Um... So, and also sacred sangha, maybe the connector between joy and suffering might be a sense of sangha, community. As I say in the Monday night group, when we're, we're practicing justice, we're studying and practicing justice, when it comes time to chant the Pali refuges, with full awareness that not everybody there identifies as a Buddhist. People seem to groove a little bit, though, with the Pali refuges or to find something in there that's meaningful. I peek and see who's chanting and what their expressions look like. And in truth, I really have no idea. But I'm always aware that this is a chant from the Buddhist tradition and not everybody being Buddhist. In fact, some people being actively Christian why would we chant this? And so there is a beautiful way to translate the triple treasure, the three refuges, the three treasures, not from a kind of particularly Buddhist way, but just from a human way. Um, And so Buddha Dharma Sangha can be understood as the teachings of the Buddha that are practiced by members of, you know, a Buddhist practice place. And they can also be understood as just, um, you know, a group of people making an effort to wake up to the truth, to live in truth, to be aligned with reality. And that it's helpful to do that. In fact, it might only be possible to do that with others. As my therapist would say, healing happens in relationship. So that could be understood as as this sangha, sangha community, like-minded people, um, good company on the path of awakening. And so later on, Um, In a few minutes, I would love to ask you a question, and maybe you can start thinking about it now. You know, this kind of thinking that's beyond thinking, that's not about coming from here, but more maybe in the context of samadhi, zamai in Japanese, samadhi, We say that word several times during the week because two times in the morning on Wednesdays and Thursdays, we, as part of our service, we offer chanting. And on Wednesdays, we chant the jewel mirror samadhi. And on Thursdays, we chant the self-fulfilling or the self-receiving and employing samadhi. So this apparently is is an important word in Zen practice because we use it so much, samadhi. It's often translated as concentration. 
But again, it doesn't mean the concentration like the famous statue, the thinker, <laughs> Rodin's Western depiction of concentration, maybe, which is about thinking, which is wonderful. Thinking is not bad in, its, in and of itself. What unfortunately tends to happen for some reason is that activity of a human being thinking tends to sort of dominate. It tends to sort of bully the other potential activities of a human being. And even as I would say of the human mind, activities like sensing, feeling, and many others that are subtle. But this concentration, samadhi, and my understanding and my experience is more like immersion. It's more, I'm thinking when I learned Spanish, I, I learned Spanish and French by living in cultures where French and Spanish are spoken. And that for me is just so much easier and it's so much enjoyable. It is not intellectual. It's practical or environmental, relational. It's relational. It arises out of meals. It arises out of falling in love with someone who only speaks that language, does not speak English. It's just, it's so much easier and it's just so much more enjoyable. Joy. So this samadhi, a translation of it, comes out of, um, I first encountered uh, this Jijiyu Zamai in this translation long before I met Tygen Layton, who spoke on Thursday night. And it appears in this book he wrote that he shared with us on Thursday night, Cultivating the Empty Field, teachings of Zen Master Hongshur, who um, was a Chan teacher. He taught a Chinese teacher, uh, teaching what we now know as Zen, Chan in Chinese. Um, and it appears in a little a little section, a kind of a fascicle of his teachings called the upright cauldron, the backward step in the upright cauldron. For those of you who are interested in Ehe Dogen, Dogen Zenji, um, Hongshur was very influential on Dogen. He predates Dogen. <clears throat> and um, it may be that Dogen wrote the Fukan Zazengi because of his contact with Hongshur's the backward step, this backward step. This backward step is what we just did, sitting Zazen, taking this backward step, sitting down, sitting on our own mat, as I've heard some people in the recovery movement say, sitting on our own mat, standing on our own mat, taking responsibility for this for my own body, mind, for my own life, for my actions of body, speech, and mind. Taking the backward step is to sit down, you know, and when we say take responsibility, it's not from a punitive sense, which some of us might make that connection, repentance and confession, <laughs> being some kind of you've been bad and you must repent. No, repent the Etymology of the word repent is to turn around. This is what Dogen is pointing to when he talks about taking the backward step. Stepping back, sitting down, having a look, having another look at this. Who is this? This person right here. And why does she do what she does? <laughs> you know, like every month when we practice actively, with the 10 precepts, vowing not to kill, vowing not to take what's not given, vowing not to misuse sexuality, vowing not to harbor at will. Um, we see these as practices. And so every month when we turn to them actively, we're turning actively toward our transgressions of the previous month with a spirit of compassion, with a spirit of inquiry, wonder, like, oh, there I go again, disparaging the three treasures. If any of you is studying that actively, what does it mean to disparage the three treasures? 
What does it mean to harbor ill will? How am I hurting myself by holding on to my anger and not finding ways to actively honor it, expressing it in a way that could be actually helpful? It could be like an intervention in my relationship with someone else. So it's an opportunity to see how, and, and we might say it's an opportunity to, to see every month when we, when we actively turn to the precepts, because ideally we're engaging with the precepts all the time, but sometimes we forget. So once a month we have this full moon ceremony where we go, oh yeah, precepts, living according to the precepts. And, and, and that might be understood as remembering to engage our whole being to be fully alive in our shimmering suchness and our complete aliveness, which includes our anger. You know, the ways that we kill, the ways that we steal, because possibly we're withholding something there is something that's closeted in shame or fear, self-loathing. So this is, this is all the terrain of freedom, the freedom which springs from truth-telling, telling the truth rooted in compassion, compassion for ourselves and therefore compassion for the world, just as the world is. And just as we are. So the samadhi and the self-receiving and employing, the self-fulfilling samadhi arises out of this ground of truth-telling and compassion and joy. So the quote that I, I, I remember, and I always remember, is from this backward step in the upright cauldron. The upright cauldron, some of you, maybe all of you will love this. The cauldron, you know, in the Zen tradition, we love cooking. The cauldron is seen as a site of alchemy, of transformation. And it's kind of witchy. (laughs) Witches use cauldrons transforming herbs into medicine. You know, eye of newt and whatever else, something to do with toads cooking things and transforming transforming them into medicine. And, you know, when we offer the meal chant, we also talk about this. Um, We venerate the three treasures and give thanks for this food, the work of many beings, and the transformation of other forms of life. Transforming food into beneficial activity in the world, how we use the calories that we receive when we take in a meal, we sit down for a meal. So that's a kind of alchemy. And so this cauldron is where we cook things, but we also are the cauldron, our upright posture. We are the upright cauldron. We're transforming ingredients like anger, into wisdom and greed into a kind of desire for awakening, a desire for connection. So the backward step in the upright cauldron, according to Hong Shur, So I'll read the whole paragraph because his language is is so refreshing, especially for those of you who are feeling overwhelmed right now in your process of beginning to awaken to suffering, to the magnitude of suffering your own and others. And so when I offer this, it's meant to encourage you to take your place, to 
to root yourself in your seat, to settle into Mother Earth, to allow Mother Earth to receive you, to hold you, to ground yourself as you open. And that there are many ways to express suffering. Hongshur has a way that I remember when I first entered the monastery and I encountered his teachings, I found them very uplifting, very reassuring in their nobility and their evocative quality of the natural world. That this is just awakening to the truth is simply an encouragement to harmonize with nature, including human nature. Puncture, with the depths clear, utterly silent, thoroughly illuminate the source, empty and spirited, vast and bright. Even though you have lucidly scrutinized your image and no shadow or echo meets it, searching throughout, you see that you still have distinguished between the merits of a hundred undertakings then you must take the backward step and directly reach the middle of the circle from where light issues forth. Outstanding and independent, still, you must abandon pretexts for merit. Carefully discern that naming engenders beings and that these rise and fall with intricacy when you can share yourself, then you may manage affairs and you have the pure seal that stamps the 10,000 forms. Traveling the world, meeting conditions, the self joyfully enters samadhi in all delusions and receives its full function, which is to empty out the self so as not to be full of itself. The empty valley receives the clouds. The cold stream cleanses the moon, not departing and not remaining, far beyond all the changes. You can give teachings without attainment or expectation. Everything everywhere comes back to the olden ground. Not a hair has been shifted, bent, or raised up. Despite a hundred uglinesses or a thousand stupidities, the upright cauldron is naturally beneficent. Jiaozhou's answers, wash out your bowl and drink your tea, do not require making arrangements. From the beginning, they have always been perfectly apparent. Thoroughly observing, thoroughly observing each thing with the whole eye is a patch-robed monk's spontaneous conduct I know that's a lot don't worry about it <laughs> just see what sticks and how it feels if there's anything there that captures your imagination that settles your turbulent spirit that raises your curiosity and your wonder <laughs> about being alive <laughs> or whatever practice but this thing, you know, just to say Jajo's answer is wash out your bowl and drink your tea. This is for some monks here, you know, who are going through these rites of passage or of receiving jukai, lay ordination, who are formally training. To not forget, you know, Jajo's response to the monk who said, what is the meaning of the Buddha Dharma? Tell me, tell me. What am I doing? Why do I keep coming back to sit every single Sunday or every single day? Jiaozhou says, have you had breakfast? And the monk says, yes. And Jiaozhou says, then wash your bowls. <laughs> or, you know, as Paul Reps famously said, drinking this cup of tea, I stop the war. That's Jiaozhou's response, have a cup of tea. That it's so easy to get turbulent because we're trying to save the world 
or we're trying to end our suffering, our own particular suffering. It's a beautiful thing to come to a practice place because you're trying to end your suffering. You're trying to deal with your suffering. You're recognizing, you're naming it as suffering. That's already a big step. Instead of just being caught in it, just caught in depression, caught in anger, you know, just being able to have enough distance to name it as suffering already is a big deal. Congratulations if you're starting to see that. So the particular part, and then I'll stop so we can have just a little bit of time. You know, before I forget, I'd like to ask someone if you would consider, especially if you're on staff, if you know how to use breakout rooms on Zoom. I don't see the breakout button anymore. We don't need to do that this morning, but just in the future, it might be good. It would be good to just do one-on-ones to consider this, but I think we can do it as a group. This question, what is Sangha? Um, In the context of this samadhi of traveling the world, meeting conditions, living your life in the midst of living your life, Is it possible to find joy? The self joyfully enters samadhi in all delusions. It doesn't mean you have to get enlightened first to find joy. That some would say enlightenment is joy. And I would say, you all, maybe some of you know the famous book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Have you heard of that book? Jack Kornfield? Okay. The um, Vipassana people, the Vipassana community, one of their teachers came out with a book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, meaning that, you know, once you attain some kind of release, you know, some people call it enlightenment, awakening, that you still have to do the laundry. You still have to take care of your everyday life. Well, I challenge that as a Zen teacher. I challenge that notion. After the ecstasy, you still have to do the laundry. I feel what Hongshur is saying here. Um, Traveling the world, meeting conditions, like having to do the laundry. The ecstasy is the laundry. The ecstasy, the joy, is found in meeting the everyday requirements. (laughs) of being alive, of having a body. So that's something to consider as we take up this samadhi, this concentration, this whole body immersion in our actual life, just as it is with systemic racism, white supremacy, and how it manifests right here, me as a white person. This is not about beating ourselves up, more guilt-tripping, more othering, This is about compassion and finding the joy there in the awakening. Is it possible to find joy? Yes, it is. How? To find joy in the midst of awakening to the fact of systemic racism. So Sangha, Sangha is vital in this process of awakening. This is why it's one of the triple treasures, why why it's one of the three jewels why it's something that's precious, that shines. It warms up the Buddha Dharma. It warms up the teachings of the Buddha. It prevents the teachings from being philosophy, from being something abstract, from being an issue. As we're studying, racial justice is not an issue. It's what impacts the lives of people we love who are black, and it impacts the lives of people we love who are white. It impacts our lives. It's not an issue. It's about how we're in relationship with each other and ourselves. So Sangha is how we're studying all of this, how we're playing with all of this, how we're awakening within all of this. It's how we express, you know, like the party we're about to have at at Kaja's new new house, at Kaja's new house in Ipswich. She has this new place um, in Ipswich 
there are trees all around. We're having a potluck. We're going to come together to celebrate Keisha having this new place and kind of a, a new beginning in a way, but also kind of a year of working together on Monday nights diligently, being steeped in difficult things, being challenged in our relationship with each other and ourselves, giving ourselves a chance to dance. There'll be music, there'll be food, you know, there'll be the trees, there'll be fun. <laughs> so this is Sangha. This is using joy actively using joy to sustain ourselves in the ongoing work of awakening, the ongoing work of justice. And also when I bring up this question of sacred Sangha, what is it? I'm also asking the question of you. Within the reality of systemic racism, within the reality of climate change, of climate, the climate crisis we find ourselves in, which can be overwhelming as we begin to awaken to that. How can we as a community hold our grief? How can we help each other to be in truth and not be overwhelmed by that truth? It reminds me of my dad in his last years of his life. We knew he had a degenerative illness and he and I were very close. The last three years of his life coincide with the first three years of this practice place, the Zen Center North Shore. It will always be connected for me personally. And for you, maybe you will always connect Zen practice with the ultimate question of birth and death, which is the question of knowing we're going to die, what does it mean to be fully alive? Knowing that our life is limited, that we are impermanent. How do we respond to that? For many of us, we never even allow that truth in. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And then when it comes, our last breath, many of us, there's a, an image in Zen of being like crabs in a bucket trying to escape, scrambling to get out. How can we take our, how can we how can we be friends with the fact of our impermanence? How can we be friends even with the fact of death? You know, how can we fully embrace that with joy? With love, with compassion. So with my dad, and it's difficult. I just want to say this is this is not easy. But what I'm proposing is that it's much more difficult to not start studying this now and to wait until it's too late. And death is completely a stranger. And then we're terrified. And that's all we have is our terror. So with my dad, I saw that, and we, we talked very openly. I've told the story many times. My dad, when... Um, <laughs> Two things I want to say, because I was with someone the other day here in Beverly who said, oh, did you hear that there's a, a building for sale that maybe the Zen Center would be interested in as a, as a physical practice place? It's a former funeral home. And of course, we said, perfect. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, it's a, a million and a half, so I don't think it's going to work. And besides, I think Montserrat is buying it anyway. But my dad, I was reminded of when my dad and I went to the funeral home, Waters Funeral Home in Concord, New Hampshire, to pay for his funeral, to make all the arrangements for his funeral, which is such a kind thing to do. So it's all clear. It was hard enough when he did die. At least everything was in place and we just followed the steps that he had laid out. But in that meeting with the funeral director, 
you know, after talking about all of it, signing the contract, handing over the check, my dad with his walker, he turned around to start to leave. And the funeral director said, Mr. Amaral, do you have any, any other questions? And my dad turned around and with a smile on his face, he just said, no, it's just good to be alive. <laughs> but knowing he was going to die, he had just written the $8,000 check or whatever it was for his funeral. Right now he's alive. Right now he was alive. But throughout, you know, that wasn't a permanent kind of state. He continually went through all kinds of things, all kinds of emotions around this. And one of the energies, one of the tensions that I saw with his and my relationship, my being his primary person, was the koan of how do I, how do we, he and I, encourage him to keep engaging with, with life while he's alive without falling into denial that he was also actively dying? And then how do we turn to the reality of his decline without giving up? I really feel like this is the question that's before us around climate, around our earth. So this is the, the ground of the question I'm asking you. How, as a community, us, we, how can we hold our grief, awakening to the truth of how bad it is, how bad it's gotten, without falling into doom, without giving up? How can we be in the truth of how bad it is and work toward mitigating the badness of it. And then also support each other in our grief because of the reality of it. The loss of life already because of the magnitude of the fires and the hurricanes and the heat, the dramatic heat that we saw last week that was sustained over several days. And then it quickly changes. And then it's kind of even cold. This is so hard on us, on our bodies and our minds. As we know, there's a lot of anxiety and it's being expressed in a lot of different ways. So how as we, as a practice community, how can we hold this? So that's an ongoing question I have about grief circles and we are the perfect number this morning to do that. There are eight of us here, eight bodhisattvas. I was with the, the climate scientist, Kriti, who's just a wonderful Zen teacher. She's out of um, Colorado, I think, from the Rinzai tradition. And she said, I was in a national conference last week where she, she shared some thoughts about this. And she said, eight is the perfect number to start by sharing grief, holding, creating a container to hold our grief and to talk, to encourage each other to talk and to listen to each other. We've been doing this already, but I, I'm just making a little bit more explicit this morning. So the question within that, maybe to back up, is what is this community? What is Sangha? So I guess I'll just ask that right now. Is there anything that comes up for you when you think about Sangha? And it doesn't have to be a Zen Sangha, this Zen Sangha. It could be, you know, another community that you've been involved with where you've, you've felt the support and the encouragement to be in truth and to Keep going in truth. Is there anybody who's would be up for shit? Yeah, Jikan. Hi. Um, as you were reading earlier, um, two phrases popped out 
for me. Um, one was share yourself, and the other was thousand stupidities. And I was sort of relating it to recovery. Um, there are there are times in meetings that um, I have shared things that just on my own in isolation are just seem horrendous, like just fill me with embarrassment and self-loathing and I can't just horrible. Like I just make, if I were to dwell on them, I don't even want to go on. But so there's something about sharing those things in a meeting that turns them into joyful things. I, I don't, I can't explain it. I don't know exactly how it happens, but things that could be like so, you know, embarrassing, horrendous to us, you know, privately, but when you share them with others in that sort of community, it, it, the expression of it somehow becomes joyful. And I don't, and not to like, you know, belittle what those things were. I mean, they were not joyful things, but there's something bonding in the expressing of it to other people who you know have had their own experiences and you start to see connections between you and those other people. Yeah, thank you, Chika. Beautiful. Sangha means sharing of yourself, taking that chance, taking that risk to entrust other people with what's going on with you, with your story right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel that with the We Seeking Mind Talks, when people share their stories in more of that formal setting, that giving and receiving of your truth as you're experiencing it right now, and having the, the chance to feel what that's like, and the compassion of those who are listening to that story, and also those who are telling that story, that kind of solidarity. Thank you, Jikun. Anybody else? Anything coming up for you that you'd like to share? Are you feeling overwhelmed? <laughs> Are you feeling grief? Hi, Paula. I was just going to say what a beautiful backdrop, and I know it's not virtual. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> People were coming over to disturb me to make a little designs in the sand where they always make them, so I moved. <laughs> A practice opportunity. Um, so, yes, I mean, I've definitely been feeling overwhelmed. And I think Sangha is um, remind, helping to remind me, like you said, wash out your bowl and drink your tea. And just, you know, that's really why I'm here this morning at the beach, you know, just to like get back to connecting with nature, you know, realizing that I'm a part of everything and coming back to that calmness. And um, yeah, I think that's, it makes it easier to discuss things that are hard and overwhelming when we're coming from a place of that calmness, you know, and connection. And I feel like Sangha is a place where we can start with that. Um, and then get to those harder topics, like sort of naturally when we're ready, coming from a place of peace. Well, thank you, Paula. Coming <laughs> from a place of peace. You know, that that's so wonderful. I was going to talk about the three marks of existence this morning. Some of you may have heard of this teaching in Buddhism, but I'm going to just name it just briefly right here. They are... Um, the fact of suffering, the fact of difficulty, old age, sickness, death, no separate self, that we don't exist in a vacuum, that we're created by and creating everything and everyone everywhere. So sometimes it's called non-self. Um, and then the third one is that things are impermanent. Things are in a constant state of change. And sometimes there's a fourth mark Sometimes it's seen as the third one interchangeable with either impermanence or no separate self. And sometimes it's seen as a fourth mark of existence, which is this peace, Paula, that you're talking about. The word in Sanskrit is nibbana or nirvana, extinguishing of. 
sometimes we call it non-thrashing, not fighting so much, but as you're doing this morning, actively harmonizing with everything, returning to nature, you know, returning to the natural world as deep support, as an expression of you taking your place in all of it. You are part of nature. Returning to nature is this mark of existence, nibbana, peace, cessation. And yes, thank you. It's the, it is the ground of meaningful, sustained, authentic justice work. It can be no other. I don't think we'd be able to sustain the difficult work, and it wouldn't make sense if it didn't arise out of the ground of peace. Thank you. And the, the welcome garden, by the way, is a very peaceful place, everybody. <laughs> it's a physical practice place this summer. If you're in the Beverly area and you want to come by, Paula, you are pouring so much of your love there. It's wonderful to see you taking your place in that practice field. Anybody else have anything that you'd like to share? How you're connecting with Sangha? What is community for you? I also, for those of you, this might be of use. I used to tell Darlene, my teacher, when I first started practicing, you know, Buddha Dharma Sangha is the three jewels. I used to say, Buddha Dharma, no problem. Sangha, big problem. <laughs> because it's also true that <laughs> for some of us who've read, this wasn't actually my experience, but reading the teachings and seeing Buddhism as a philosophy is wonderful and exciting and interesting. And oh, isn't it just so lovely? And then Sangha is kind of where the rubber meets the road, where you get to actually experience the teachings of suffering and awakening through each other, through our messy and complicated relationships with each other, how we get into trouble with each other, we disappoint each other. And maybe we could consider that the practice or the opportunity of Sangha is that muscle, that coming back muscle, no matter how we may hurt each other, that we return to the relationship. We insist on something deeper than, you know, a preference for comfort or non-disappointment, that we use disappointment to get closer to each other. Sebastian, is there anything that you'd like to share? Hi, everyone. Um, I attended recovery meetings for many years and um, discovered incredible sangha and yeah and I think I came to a point where I didn't I wasn't satisfied with going to a recovery meeting and singing Kumbaya and feeling wonderful and then going home and suffering terribly alone in silence and kind of living in the schism of that spiritual practice that I had created for myself and it, it kept me going in a way, but it wasn't whole and it wasn't complete and it wasn't myself and I think in a in an odd way I've endeavored to find sangha in all things that I am and I'm surrounded by and I was thinking about all of this and I was staring at the fan in front of me and the fan is a lot like a wheel and at the center of a wheel and a fan is, is a hole and there are these spokes coming off from the hole, all these conditions 
but at the center there's a there's an empty space and I don't want to be a spoke that is a lovely spoke and then has the other side of the spoke. There's something about, and this links with the words of that chap you spoke about, which were really profound, um, the cauldron and taking a step back and then staying connected to spirit, being the empty space through joy is actually the thing, the quality that sustains um, Sangha with all things and all conditions. And uh, that's the most ridiculous proposition I've ever heard. That's a completely ridiculous proposition, and I love it. And I think it's fantastic. And it reminds me of a phrase that the Sufis use to describe themselves, which is idiots of God. I love that. I want to be an idiot of God. <laughs> Welcome to your Sangha, Sebastian. <laughs> Welcome home. <laughs> As some know, what we chant on Wednesdays, the song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi ends with practicing like a fool, like an idiot. <laughs> this is part of, part of the joy. This is because I, I, I'm feeling you, Sebastian, that it's such a, it's such a, a, a shame, a tragedy, although it may be just a provisional stage that some people and it have the notion that meditation is going to save you. It's going to make you smarter, more productive, a better sharpshooter for the U.S. military, <laughs> a better widget <clears throat> in the service of capitalism. You know, my feeling is it sort of comes out in the wash that, you know, that maybe that that's like what, what the Zen people, we can't get too smug about this, might call playing in the entryway of beginning to touch something. I think human beings, though, are smarter than that and start to wake up to, oh, yeah, this is not. Meditation is much deeper than trying to be a better anything. That this is the actual experience I'm having is just a return to my body, and that alone just feels like enough. So, in some ways, I'm I'm feeling like this. What what this this particular sangha is doing is welcoming some of the refugees from this so-called secularized mindfulness movement who've seen through that. You know that there is great joy in the realization that meditation is not going to save me because maybe I actually don't need saving. Maybe all I need is just to notice the bird song. And maybe every time I sit on my cushion, there's something palpable. I don't notice it here. I notice it from the neck down. Well, not from the neck down, because I, I might smell it, I hear it, you know. I just don't notice it from my brain that others are doing it too. And that is deeply encouraging. It's like a little revolution happening, a revolution of kindness. We don't have to, I know it scares some people to hear the word revolution, but revol, it's a revolution at the base of consciousness, as Thich Nhat Hanh called it, a transformation, an uprooting of the usual quantifying of our experience as right and wrong, gain and loss, good and bad. The idiots among us, owning idiot, is just, oh, I'm just here. <laughs> Joy! <laughs> like a fish in a puddle, finding the joy and experiencing it. And, you know, as some people say, it is all good. And as the Zen people might say, you know, it is all good and keep looking, keep engaging, keep returning, keep breathing, keep settling, keep swimming. Thank you, Sebastian. Yeah. Anybody else? Maybe one, one more person. It's really wonderful to hear from you. 
Um, Billy, I just want to say sometimes people who aren't on camera maybe a little bit more shy or reluctant. So I, I just want to say hello to you and welcome you and see if there's anything that you feel like you want to share this morning. Okay. Glad that you're here. Emily? Yeah, I'm just grateful that you brought that word preferences in. You know, it's interesting. I feel very, very much like that's for those of us who are, you know, in our seats, you know, with bells or chanting, um, training in that way. You know, it's very humbling um, to work with that. You know, how do you as that, Dewan or as that Kokyo Jikan, um, create that container at this for, for others and with others at the same time that you are holding your position, your unique position. And I think for just a lot of reasons this year, especially in this format, it has been incredibly challenging you know we've, we've talked a lot about this as staff we've talked a lot about this you know sort of post service in the morning um this environment especially i mean i think this is always challenging even in a physical space and then we have this wrinkle of how we are practicing in this virtual environment with certain things we can't control, certain things we need to learn on the fly because Zoom changes something on, on us without us knowing. Um, but that's, that's Sangha, you know, that, that building that together and having worked through this process together every day has been a really, you know, it's been powerful, I think, for me. I'll say just for me, it's been so powerful, you know, yeah, revolutionary, I think is the word, you know, there's something about it that has turned over my view of what Sangha is, you know, it's very different than, in some ways, than what I felt, you know, I remember Jikan, I have a very vivid memory of walking into the Zendo the first time, and I must have been just beyond the Han, but I was before the bell and I remember walking up to my seat and bowing and you bowing back from, you were already seated and you bowed back and I, I immediately just, you know, I felt that and I went, okay. And I took that deep breath and went, all right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm welcome. I'm here. I can take my place. And that's a very, you know, there's physical connectivity there. There's energy there. That's, that's very close. And then there's, this where we're not sitting exactly next to each other, but we are with each other and we're carrying each other through each day as we practice and building this container over and over and over again. You know, I think with zoom, I really feel the, the collapse and the come back together of the container every day in some way. It's very strange. Um, and I appreciate it immensely. Um, I appreciate it so deeply, especially all of those who have worked really hard this year. Everybody here on the screen has worked really hard this year to continue to uphold this. So I'm just feeling that this morning a lot as I look at all of you. Um, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emily. You know, as Hongshur says, you know, the patch-robed monk's spontaneous conduct. <laughs> you know, what is that? Why does he say that? And there's so many ways he says this, too. Um, carefully discern. Oh, yeah. Outstanding and independent. Still, you must abandon pretext for merit. As um, Pema Chodron says, don't expect applause. <laughs> for as hard as we're working, for as much effort as we're, we're making, for what are we doing all this activity? This spontaneous conduct, it's like a constant invitation for joy, for freshness, for aliveness. You know, and that, that I think is, is the true offering. 
And still, you know, Emily, as you're pointing out, it's really, it's the koan of a practice place, you know, to maintain the container so that that spontaneous conduct can be experienced and enjoyed. So one last thought about these forms, you know, of bowing to each other and how life-changing that can be to feel that. I invite you here 14 months into the Zoom (laughs) experience, when you come to sit down, you know, even if, if you're already sitting, whenever you turn your camera on, go ahead and bow. Bow to the screen or just bow and maybe someone will bow back to you. I really appreciate, and this is for people who sit in the morning during the week especially, but this morning too, the period after kinhin. And if you're just zooming in at the beginning of the second period and you're there for it, to remain standing after kinhin at your seat. And then when you hear the bell, we all bow together and sit down. That's just such a nice feeling that really does override the two dimensions on Zoom and prepares us for when we're back in physical practice to have that sense of solidarity of here we go, back into another period of zazen. This is not something rarefied that we're doing. This is our actual life. Returning to the cushion over and over again, returning to consciousness, intention, over and over again. Okay, so the last thing, and thank you very much, everybody, for sharing. I just want to introduce the idea. We'll talk about it more at staff. I'm asking Emily to put it on the agenda. The Thursday night koan, (laughs) the class series koan, what's it going to be? There's just so much movement happening in the world, in the Zen scene, nationally, the teacher-student, you know, dynamic. All of this is just sort of up. It's all kind of shimmery. What is it? You know, the work of racial justice, social justice, and formals and practice. How do these, how do these, how are these dancing together? Seeing them as one partner in this dance of human life right now. So the latest thought is beginning a week from Thursday. This Thursday, we have our Sangha meeting to talk about the survey results, which some of you have filled out, thank you for that, of how are you doing with the pandemic, with beginning to think about coming back into physical practice, what's important to you, that people be vaccinated, masks, are you not ready to come back into physical practice? Beginning that conversation, we asked you to respond to the survey, and now we're receiving those responses, the leadership, And we want to have a chance to talk about them with you. So please show up if you can on Thursday night after Zazen, after the well-being ceremony. We'll just see who's there and we'll have a conversation about how all of it's feeling, being in a process together of making this decision about where, when, how we come back to physical practice. And then beginning the following Thursday, I'm proposing that the class series for the summer be not really a class, but a continuing conversation on Sangha, sacred Sangha. What makes a community a community? And I'd like to ask that it be more horizontal for this summer, that it be kind of like the Way Seeking Mind Talks or kind of like the sharing we're doing in the Welcome Garden and on Monday nights, that Each week, someone share something from your life about what Sangha means to you or what community is. It could be a poem, it could be a movie, it could be a newspaper article, it could be an anecdotal story, an experience. It could be about this Sangha. It could be something from the Buddhist tradition, something that's arising within the justice work on Monday nights. Just to share it, it's not like you have to present the whole time, just to put it out there and give us something to use as a basis for continuing to explore, appreciate, enjoy, and use the Sangha Jewel because we are going to need it as we go forward. So think about that. We'll talk about it at staff. You'll start to see stuff on the website. And if you have any immediate comments now, unmute 
Otherwise, feel free to call or email if you want to talk about it one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody. It's really, really nice to see you in this ongoing creation of Zen Center North Shore, this particular Sangha place. So we'll end by, by appreciating, enjoying, using, returning to the three jewels. Thank you so much. Feel free to unmute to say goodbye. Anything else you'd like to say? Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.